scripture is from fifth chapter of James, verses 7 through 12. Be patient, therefore, brothers, until the coming of the Lord. See how the farmer waits for the precious fruit of the earth, being patient about it until it receives the early and the late rains. You also be patient. Establish your heart to the coming of the Lord is at hand. Do not grumble against one another, brothers, so that you may not be judged. Behold, the judge is standing at the door. As an example of suffering and patience, brothers, take the prophets who spoke in the name of the Lord. Behold, we consider those blessed who remain steadfast. You have heard of the steadfastness of Job, and you have seen the purpose of the Lord, how the Lord is compassionate and merciful. But above all, my brothers, do not swear, either by heaven or by earth, or by any other oath, but let your yes be yes, and your no be no, so that you may not fall under condemnation. Holy and gracious Heavenly Father, in these next few moments as we worship you through the preaching of your word. Lord, I pray, God, that as we encounter you in your word, Lord, we would grow to understand more of who you are. And when we understand more of who you are, we become more aware of what you desire of us. And Lord, as we become more aware of what you desire of us, may we be conformed to what you desire in us. Lord God, I pray that for whatever reason we have come here this morning, Lord, that at this moment, the outcome of us being here under your word is that we would go out of this place never to be the same again. Lord God, be honored this morning as we open your word and seek to do justice to the text. May we learn, may we grow, and may we be ever changed into the image of your son. And it's in his name I pray. Amen. Often we look at circumstances in our lives, and certainly there are many people in the world who would look at the issues of the world, and we'll, we will all ask the question, if God can do something, why doesn't he do something? Now, those who are not followers of Christ may use this question uh, to give a reason as to why they, quote, can't believe in Christ. They will say things like, well, there's so much evil in the world. If God could stop it, then why doesn't he? Therefore, I can't worship him or, or, or whatever that may be. And that may be you this morning. But for those of us who are believers, we say, well, we never ask that question. Well, the truth is, is we do ask that question. We just ask it a little differently. We tend to ask it this way. Since I know God is able to do something about my situation, why doesn't he do what I want him to do with the outcome I would like and within the time frame I have predetermined is best for me? So we, we changed the question a little, but it's really the same question. I remember when Luann and I, actually when we first got married, even before we got married, we had already begun to discuss adoption. And part of that reason was because we were told early on in our marriage even that it would be very difficult for us to have children. Um, you can see how that worked out. <laughs> but the Lord never changed our heart in regard to adoption. And so after we had Micah, our, our fourth, and the, and, and the doctors told us that we could not have any more children, we began to pray hard about what the Lord would have us to do. And not, not if he would have us to adopt, but when. We were very uh, certain on that. And so we prayed, but really what we did was we said, Lord, we know you want us to adopt, so here's our plan. God bless it. And we began to pursue adoption. Uh, we started through the state. When we were in Texas, we started through uh, an agency, but it was state adoption. We started that way. We went through all of the training. 
We paid the fees. We turned in, if you've ever done this, you know, they call it a paper pregnancy. We turned in, I mean, so many papers and forms, it wasn't even funny. I mean, it was just so much. And our agency lost all of our paperwork. We were so disheartened um, that we just stepped away from them and decided that that was not what the Lord had for us. So we immediately said, you know what? I think the Lord wants us to, uh, uh, to, to adopt from Ethiopia. So we began the process to adopt from Ethiopia, turned in our paperwork, uh, turned in, uh, paid uh, thousands of dollars in fees to be able to get all of these things rolling. And after we paid all these um, fees into the Ethiopian adoption process, Ethiopia as a country shut down for adoptions. We lost all of our money. And we lost all of our paperwork again. We said, well, that, the Lord doesn't want us to give up. So we're going to adopt from Uganda. Some friends of ours adopt from Uganda. We thought that's a great idea. So we turned in all of our paperwork. We went through the whole process again. We paid all of the fees. And then Uganda shut down. And we lost all of the money and all the paperwork. And at the end of our rope, we just decided, you know what? I think we should go to the Lord and ask him what we should do. <laughs> so we began to pray. And it became very clear to us that while we had the right end in mind, we were trying to do things according to our own plan and according to our own timing. And so several months later, eight, nine months later, um, after the final uh, attempt, I had actually graduated from seminary. And we were in Arlington, Texas, and we were driving to Wake Forest, North Carolina. It's a long drive. And uh, we talked about it the whole way. We prayed while the kids slept in the back. I mean, all of those different things. And we got there. And um, I went to bed that night because the next day was graduation day. And there were, I mean, I had a breakfast at 7.30. And it was everything all day long, nonstop until graduation. So I, uh, I fell asleep pretty early. Luann fell asleep next to me, or so I thought. She got up about midnight, went into the living room of the little uh, room we were staying in, and began to scroll through things on her phone. And she found a page for waiting children. And um, at about 4.30 a.m. in Wake Forest, North Carolina, she came across a picture of a little girl from Bulgaria and said, this is our daughter. And waited until the next morning to wake me up, which also happened to be our 10-year wedding anniversary. And she said, hey, um, I'd just like you to know, I think I found something. And I looked at it and said, that's our daughter. See, patience is hard. And we were not patient. In fact, we were anything but patient. But looking back... God's plan and God's timing is always better. And God's people, unlike what we displayed in that process, God's people should trust him because simply genuine faith is patient. Genuine faith is patient. See, we tend to view our lives in the world and, and, the, and the happenings of our own personal situations, um, if what we refer to it as playing the short game. We tend to, we tend to only see a little bit in front of us and we, we think immediately. We only think about what's happening tomorrow or the next day. And when we think this way, we also tend to think according to our own timing. Like, I need a new job, so I expect it to happen in the next two to three days. And then what happens is we pray for God to do things in our life, or in the life of the church, or, or the life of our children, or anyone. We begin to pray for God to do those things. And we are prone, as Christians, to think that God is not answering our prayers because he did not answer them immediately. In fact, we think we're doing good if we pray and ask God for something and then we wait a week or two. Or maybe a few months. 
But see, God will always answer the prayers of his people. But as Adrian Rogers said, God answers prayer in three ways. God may answer your prayer by saying yes. God may answer your prayer by saying no. And God may answer your prayer by saying not yet. But he will always answer your prayers. Now, the reason we struggle with this is because we think, as we talked about last week in planning, right? And, and, and saying, instead of saying, we're going to do this, we're going to do that, we say, if the Lord wills. We think in the grand scheme of all of history and in the grand scheme of all creation, we, we think in short-term things. And yet God has a plan from beginning to end. And James told us last week that we are but a vapor. We appear for a little while and then we vanish away. Let's put it another way that I heard a long time ago. You and I are simply a blip on the radar screen of history. And we think according to our own plan. We think according to our own finite minds and we don't think according to God's plan we think things should happen according to our own timetables and we don't understand when it doesn't happen this way however the first thing we see in this text this morning is that we should live patiently in God's timing we should live patiently in God's timing brother Malcolm I read for you moments ago beginning in Verse 7 of James chapter 5. Be patient, therefore, brothers, until the coming of the Lord. See how the farmer waits for the precious fruit of the earth, being patient about it, until he receives the early and the late rains. You also be patient. Establish your hearts, for the coming of the Lord is at hand. So when we begin this text, I'll tell you, uh, beginning in verse 7 through verse 12, these six verses, James gives us seven imperatives or seven commands. So it's really a string of commands. Do this, do this, do this, do this. Why? Because he's coming to the close of his letter and he wants to make sure he gets everything in before he finishes. So he says, be patient, therefore, brothers, until... The coming of the Lord. So he says, be patient. Wait. Wait on the Lord. And he says, therefore. Now, uh, this therefore, as I have said many times before, and I'm certain I will say many times again, uh, because I tend to just repeat myself over and over again. Anytime you see the word therefore, you should always ask yourself, what is the therefore, therefore? And when you look at this, he says, be patient, therefore, brothers. He's telling us something in verse 7 that connects to verse 6. He's connecting something to verse 6. And the connection is this. Verse, uh, verse 6 of chapter 5. You have condemned and murdered the righteous person. He does not resist you. So he's speaking... At the end of this, Raleigh's writing to people who claim to be Christians. That's very important in the book of James. If you haven't gotten that to this point, genuine faith. It's people who claim to be Christians. Obviously, he's writing to a people who he knows there are people in there who aren't actually believers. So, at the end of chapter 5, verse 6, he's, he's condemning or rebuking those who are wealthy and take advantage of other people. And he says, that is not the way genuine faith works you have condemned and murdered the righteous person he does not resist you be patient therefore brothers so the therefore is connected to verse 6 because the brothers of verse 7 are the ones being persecuted or mistreated in verse 6 you see that the righteous person you have condemned and murdered the righteous person he does not resist you therefore righteous person person be patient therefore until the coming of the Lord. That's how it connects to verse 6. So he says. Until the coming of the Lord. Until the coming of the Lord. Uh, the word here in Greek is the word parousia. It means the appearing or the coming. 
He says, the second coming of Christ is something you and I should live patiently waiting for. Not in a fear. Now, I want to be really clear here because this is something we hear often. Something happens in this world that is catastrophic or tragic or terrible or, or anywhere on that scale of bad things that may happen. And Christians are sometimes the most prone to begin talking about how things are horrible, things are terrible, just don't know what we're going to do. Everything's falling apart. And yet, James tells us to wait patiently for the second coming of the Lord. To wait patiently until the coming of the Lord. See, believer, there is no reason to fret about tomorrow. There is no reason to fret about today. Why? Because he just said in, in the end of chapter 4, in the beginning of chapter 5, the way you and I are to live is to say, look, if the Lord wills, what does that mean? That means he's in control. He's in control of tomorrow. Why is it so wrong for you and I to say, we're going to do this, we're going to do that? It's because we don't control tomorrow, but he does. So he tells us, therefore, under this weight of tribulation and suffering that he just talked about in chapter 5, verse 6, he tells us to wait patiently until the coming of the Lord. And then he describes it. See how the farmer waits for the precious fruit of the earth, being patient about it? Until it receives the early and the late rains. So, he's giving an illustration, an agricultural illustration, that is very understandable, especially in this area of the country. He's giving an illustration about how a farmer waits for rain. See... I don't know if you've ever farmed, uh, you, many of you have, many of you do, and if you don't, you're related to someone who does, or you know someone who does. The truth is, everybody here knows something about it, even if you just have a tiny little garden in the front yard. When you plant your garden, there is one thing, you can put the, the, the seed in the soil, you can control the soil, you can control those things, but in the end, you can do nothing to make it rain. You are completely at the mercy of something else to come to make it grow. You can't bring the rain, you're not in control of the rain, so what does the farmer do? He waits patiently. He waits patiently. But what is the reason? What's the reason he gives for why he waits patiently? See how the farmer waits for the precious fruit of the earth. Just like what? Be patient, therefore, brothers, until the coming of the Lord. Hear me. The precious fruit of the life in Christ, the precious fruit of following Jesus Christ is the coming of the Lord. It is the presence of the Lord. To put it another way, the precious fruit that you are living your life, cultivating your life to see, is either for you to die and spend eternity with the, in the presence of Christ, or for Christ to return and you to spend eternity with Christ. Either way, 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, the Apostle Paul says... That he will come with the shout of an archangel. And the dead in Christ will rise first. And we who are alive and remain will be caught up together with him. And then here is the great promise of the Christian life. And so we shall be with the Lord forever. He says, therefore, wait patiently, brothers and sisters, until the coming of the Lord. Just like a farmer waits for rain so that he might see the product of his toil. Look at verse 8. You also be patient. So he's saying, just like the farmer, you also need to be patient. Establish your hearts for the coming of the Lord is at hand. So the first command he gives us is be patient. The second command he gives us is be patient. You getting the theme here? The third command he gives us is establish your hearts. 
literally means to cause someone to become stronger in the sense of having a more firm attitude or belief. It's the opposite idea of what he referred to earlier as being double-minded and wavering and unstable in all your ways. He says, establish your heart, stand firm. Why? It is a firm adherence to the faith in the midst of difficulties and trials. That's what he's referring to here. In the midst of difficulties and trials. See, when things get hard in life, that is the easiest time for us to begin to falter and us to begin to question and to wonder the, about the goodness of God. And yet he says, establish your hearts for the coming of the Lord is at hand. It's like saying, y'all hold on. Jesus is coming back soon. And you just need to hold on. Because his coming is near in redemptive history. Why? Well, simply put, in the grand scheme of all of history, you and I are what? We're but a vapor. So in the grand scheme of God's plan, the scripture says that a thousand years is like a day to the Lord, and a day is like a thousand years. So to God, time, it doesn't really matter. And we look at it and say, oh, I've been waiting 50 years. The church has been waiting over 2,000 years. And we're not to wait begrudgingly. We're not to wait impatiently. We are to wait patiently for the coming of the Lord. Our calling is to be patient. It's to trust the will of God. Why? Because believer... Your ultimate deliverance is coming. Hear me. Your ultimate deliverance is coming. There is no questioning it. Nothing you can experience in this life, good or bad, compares to the eternity that is rushing upon you. Nothing compares. That's why the Apostle Paul refers to our sufferings as these momentary and light afflictions that are producing for us an eternal weight of glory. Believer, it may be hard now. It may be difficult, even this morning. But the Lord is telling you, take comfort, be strong, and know that Christ is coming. As certain as the dawn, and it is closer today than it has ever been before in the history of the world. You need to live your life glorifying God, serving others, and looking patiently and expectantly to the sky for His return. And... While we may come to a place where we wait patiently on the Lord, and I, and I will tell you, that's a hard place to get to. It's a hard place to say, you know what? I know it looks bad, but I'm just going to trust God's timing. I'm going to trust God's goodness. I'm going to trust God's plan. I'm not going to rush into decisions. It may be that you even come to a place where you can say, okay, I'm going to trust God to do that. However, James, ever the pastor, understands that it may be we can come to a place where we can trust God and be patient in His timing, but he also knows that it is a far different question for you and I to trust God and His timing and to be patient with other people. See, he tells us in verse 9, not only should we live patiently in God's timing, but we need to live patiently with one another. Do not grumble against one another, brothers, so that you may not be judged. Behold, the judge is standing at the door. Here's the next imperative. Do not grumble against one another. Paul connects the idea of patience with bearing with one another in love. That's Ephesians chapter 4, verse 2. He says, 
don't grumble with one another. Don't grumble against one another. The word here literally, it means groan or to sigh or cry. It's, it's, a, it's an expression of someone who's under trial or hardship. And like Exodus chapter 2 verse 23. So the complaining becomes a response to trial or hardship, oppression or mistreatment. Let's put it another way. Don't grumble against one another. That's to look at someone, and I know you've never done this, but that's to look at someone and go, oh. okay, that's literally what it means. You've never done that, I'm certain. I have not either. But what does he say? Look at this. Do not grumble against one another, brothers. James said, by the way, I'm addressing the church. I'm addressing people within the body of Christ. Don't grumble against one another. Don't speak against one another. Now, James has already been very clear about what he thinks about controlling our speech and controlling our tongues. He's just referring to that again when he says, don't grumble against one another, brothers. Now, look at verse 9. So that, here's the reason... You may not be judged. So James is tying the idea of the coming of Christ, standing before Christ, with the way in which we speak. But it's not just the judgment of sinners. We talked about this a few weeks ago, but I'm going to reference it again. When we hear that, we say, well, I didn't, think, I didn't think Christians were going to be judged. No, no, Christians are not going to be condemned. There is therefore now no condemnation in Christ Jesus, for those who are in Christ Jesus. Um, but we will all be judged. Romans chapter 14, verse 12. Each one of us will give an account of himself to God. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 10. For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ so that we may be repaid for what he has done so that he may be repaid for what he has done in the body, whether good or evil. Matthew chapter 12, verse 36. I tell you, on the day of judgment, people will have to account for every careless word they speak. Now, it, here's the thing. Believer, you will stand before the Lord. And you will give an account for what you have done in this life. Everyone will stand before the Lord and be held to account. The difference is, is that when you stand before the judgment seat of Christ, here's the beauty of it. Those who do not know Christ will stand before what's referred to as the great white throne of judgment. And after they have laid out everything in their life, they will be condemned for their life of sin and unrighteousness, and they will be sent to an eternity in hell. But those who are believers in Christ will stand before the judgment seat of Christ. And here's the beauty of this. You will stand there. You will give an account for what you have done in this body, according to Scripture. You will give an account for every idle word you have spoken. You will give an account for all of those things. But here's the wonderful thing. The one who is sitting in the judgment seat will then get off the judgment seat and stand next to you and actually declare that even though he is the judge, he is also the one who died for that sin and you are covered and you are forgiven and therefore you cannot be condemned. All your sins have been washed away because they were paid for on the cross by Jesus and because of that you can stand there not in your own righteousness but clothed in the righteousness of Jesus Christ. And in that moment because of his grace and his grace alone he will say well done, good and faithful servant. So what does he say in verse 9? Don't grumble against one another, brothers. You're going to have to stand in front of Jesus and tell him why you did that. He's going to forgive you for it, but you do realize you still have to do it. Behold, the judge is standing at the door. This is James again, kind of like the, the father now, this is James, because this word behold is actually another command. It's, it's the next one. Behold, he's saying, hey, look up here. That's exactly what he says. Hey, look up here. The judge 
is standing at the door. That means it could happen at any moment. He's, he's right there. It is impending. So he tells us that as we live patiently, trusting the plan of God, trusting the timing of God, and waiting on Christ to return, we are also to live our lives in such a way as to know we will be held accountable for our speech. Hear this. We will be held accountable for our speech about our brothers and sisters. While the coming of Christ is as certain as the dawn, and this brings us hope and it brings us joy, we should also be careful that we are living rightly before Him and before others. How's your speech regarding your brothers and sisters in Christ? Is there something you've said lately about a brother or a sister that you would be mortified if they actually heard what you said? Is there something you've said about a brother or sister? And this is even worse. See, there's one, if you've said something about a brother or sister and you'd be mortified if they found out. There's another, when you have said something about a brother or sister and you couldn't care less if they know what you said. Because the first one at least shows that you know you shouldn't have said it. The second one says you shouldn't have said it, but you don't care. The first one shows a sin. The second one shows a hardened heart toward other believers in Christ. And if that's you, James says you need to be really careful because you're going to have to stand before the Lord Jesus Christ and give an account for that. What does that mean? We could go through a list. Honestly, you could probably do a systematic theology on the concepts of backbiting and gossip and all manner of, of speech against brothers and sisters in Christ. But in the end, in the end, God gives no place in His church for His people. I, I don't know another way to say this. God doesn't give any place in His church for His people to run their mouths. You will give an account. That's what James says. You're going to stand before the Lord Jesus Christ who died on the cross for your sin. He suffered a, a fate almost worse than death itself by being punished for a sin that he didn't or for sin that he did not commit he died a gruesome physical death he was he was condemned spiritually because of the sin that you committed and I committed that was placed upon him he did all that he suffered all of that and you and I are going to have to stand before the one who when he is there you do realize that he will have the scars on his wrists, he'll have the scars on his feet, he'll have the scar on his side from the brutal death he died. You'll have to stand in front of him and give an account for the fact that you ran your mouth about your brother or your sister in Christ. See, and oftentimes in the church, as I said, about the book of James, oftentimes in the church, we, we try to figure out why a church can't get off dead center. Well, sometimes it's because these kind of things are allowed to run amok. These kind of things are allowed to happen. Can I tell you this? Not only should this not be allowed to happen in your life, it should not be allowed to happen in your home, and it most certainly will never be tolerated in this church. We speak to exhort one another, we speak to encourage one another. We speak to lift one another up. We do speak to hold one another accountable, but what's the purpose of that? So that we might encourage and lift one another up. But we do not speak to tear one another down. We do not speak ill of our brothers and sisters. We do not speak ill of anyone. Why? One, it's wrong. Two, you're going to have to stand and give an account one day. For every word you have spoken. So what does James tell us? What are we learning here about this? Well, first thing is, 
We need to own it. If this is you, you need to own it. Don't try to explain it away. Own it. Yes, that's me. I've done that. I do that. I do it often. I do it all the time. Own it. Acknowledge it. Which means to say, I agree that it's wrong. You know, that's actually what the word confession means. It means to agree. I agree, God, that it's wrong. And then you need to repent. You want me to define that for you? Repent means stop it. That's what repent means. Stop it. So what do we do if this is us? What, if we, what do we do if we're so busy um, or we, we live our lives in such a way where we try to be patient with God's timing, but we are not patient with our brothers and sisters and we tend to run our mouths? He says, you need to own it, you need to acknowledge it, and you need to stop it. So what else? What else is there? James has made it clear that suffering is an inescapable part of the Christian life. He started that in chapter 1, right? Consider it joy, brothers and sisters, when you encounter various trials and difficulties, knowing that the trying of your faith produces patience, and when patience has had its full measure, it produces maturity or perfection. When we become, or when we begin to struggle, it becomes easy to grow impatient because we want relief. We want a resolution. We want God to fix this. However, in these very difficult situations and periods in our lives, we need to live patiently in suffering. James is telling us you got to live patiently in God's timing, you got to live patiently with one another, and you've got to live patiently. In suffering. Look at verse 10. As an example of suffering and patience, brothers, take the prophets who spoke in the name of the Lord. So if you were just to go to, and and we're not going to do this, we're going to take the time to do it, but if you were just to go to Hebrews 11, you just go to Hebrews 11. And in Hebrews chapter 11, we call this the hall of faith. He, he kind of gives a description of Moses by faith, Abraham by faith, so on and so forth. Um, and then he begins to talk about the prophets. He, say, he speaks about certain prophets um, in the Old Testament. And then he says, and time would fail me to speak of. And this is actually what he says in Hebrews 11. Time would fail us to speak of. And he just begins to list people over and over. And then he says, along with the myriad of others who suffered fates, such as being sawn in two and different. He just begins to list all of these things. And yet, they all endured looking forward because they saw a city. They saw the one in the future. They lived in faith, patiently waiting for the coming of the Messiah. He says, as an example of suffering and patience, brothers, take the prophets who spoke in the name of of the Lord. Verse 11, here's the next command. Behold, he's saying, listen, behold, we consider those blessed who remain steadfast. Just very simple. We consider those blessed who remain steadfast. Why? Matthew chapter 5, 11 and 12. Jesus himself said, Blessed are you when people insult you, persecute you, and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. Rejoice and be glad, because great is your reward in heaven. For in the same way they persecuted the prophets who were before you. James is essentially referring back to the Sermon on the Mount. Which if you uh, didn't know this, and I only referenced it once at the very beginning, the book of James could almost be seen as a little bit of a commentary on the Sermon on the Mount. He he tends to take a lot of things from Jesus' teaching in Matthew 5, 6, and 7 and explains it further. So he says, blessed are those who remain steadfast. Then he gives another example. You have heard of the steadfastness of Job, and you have seen the purpose of the Lord. Now, when you think about the story of Job, Job encountered immense suffering. Job encountered tragic difficulty. Job encountered hardships that many of us cannot even fathom. Even to the point that his own wife looked at him and said, here's my best advice I can give you. Job, curse God and die. What a wife. 
The best advice he could be given was, look, just curse God so he'll kill you and get this over with. Because it's better than suffering. It's better than remaining steadfast. Now, sure, in the midst of it, Job is human. Job began to question. Job began to say, look, I didn't do anything wrong. I didn't do anything to deserve this. But do you remember when God came down to speak to Job, and he spoke to Job, and he put Job in his place? Job's response, Job's response was, I have uttered things that were too great for me. I didn't understand them. But my eyes have seen the Lord. He says, look, I'm going to stand firm. I'm going to hold fast. He says, you've heard of the steadfastness of Job and you've seen the purpose of the Lord. What does he mean by you've seen the purpose of the Lord in the story of Job? Well, look at Job. Everything that was taken away from Job, God restored to Job. Everything. And he says, you've seen the purpose of the Lord. What was the purpose of the Lord in the life of Job? It was to show Job that God is who God is and Job is who Job is, but that Job was a faithful servant of the Lord. And that God... is who he is. Is look at the last part of verse 11. And you have seen the purpose of the Lord, how the Lord is compassionate and merciful. The Lord is compassionate and merciful. Um, this word is untranslated in English uh, translations because it, it sounds awkward in English. But in Greek, there's a word there that if we were to read it, it would, simply, it would say something like, you have heard of the steadfastness of Job and you have seen the purpose of the Lord because the Lord is compassionate and merciful. He says that's the reason that God did what he did in the life of Job. That's the reason that Job could stand firm in the midst of trial and difficulty. Because God is compassionate and because God is merciful. He's compassionate. It means... We teach our children to sing this from the time they're little. It simply means he loves you. That's what it means. He loves you. Sometimes we look for deep, deep spiritual and theological meaning. But in the words of one theologian, when he was asked the greatest truth that he ever knew throughout decades of study and all kinds of academic pursuits... He was asked, what is the greatest truth that you have ever come to know? And his response was, Jesus loves me, this I know, for the Bible tells me so. He loves you. And he is merciful. Because he loves you, because he loves me, he does not give us what we deserve. See, we have an amazing set of examples to follow in the Old Testament. He tells us the prophets, Job, and he's telling us something else. He's telling us God's people have always been expected to understand that in this life we will struggle. In this life we will have difficulty. In this life we will have trouble. In this life we will suffer. But we are called to suffer well because we suffer with hope. We suffer because in the midst of remembering that the Lord's coming is at hand. See, like Job, brother, like Job, sister, you can wait patiently on the Lord knowing you will be delivered not because you're awesome and not because God understands that you had a plan for your life, not because God knows what you wanted to do. Brother and sister, you can wait patiently on the Lord and know that the Lord will deliver you, not because of anything in you, but because the Lord is compassionate and the Lord is merciful. He will deliver you because of who He is. You can trust His motive is that He loves you. 
And you can trust his character, that he's merciful. So you may be struggling, but your loving and merciful Father will deliver you. So wait patiently on him. And when our focus is on the coming of the Lord, which is the point of this whole passage, our focus is on the coming of the Lord, then we can wait patiently in the timing of the Lord. We can wait, we can be patient with one another. We can be patient in suffering. And we can live patiently with expectancy and simplicity. Look at verse 12. But above all, my brothers. So this connects to the previous verses. He's saying, I've said all this, but even more than that, do not swear, either by heaven or by earth or by any other oath, but let your yes be yes and your no be no, so that you may not fall under condemnation. Very simply, he says you need to live your life patiently, expectantly, faithfully. And that kind of life is not a life that's marked by big speech, which he just referenced in the previous chapter. Well, I'm going to do this, and I'm going to make this, and I'm going to go here, and I'm going to go that. He says, don't do that. You live patiently. You trust the Lord. You wait on Him. You, you say, if the Lord wills, and you live in such a way is to let your yes be yes and your no be no. Your speech, my speech, should be certain. It should be simplistic. Why? I don't have to give big promises. I know this. Christ is coming again. The gospel is true. People need to know Jesus. And God will always take care of His church. Anything outside of that doesn't matter. And I can let my yes be yes and my no be no because anything outside of that doesn't matter. He took this almost directly from Matthew 5, 34 and 37. Again, in the Sermon on the Mount. Do not swear at all, either by heaven or by earth or by Jerusalem. Do not swear by your head. Simply let your yes be yes and your no be no. Because anything beyond this comes from the evil one. See, in James's day, there was a tendency to use oaths to get out of actually doing things. Like if I swore, I would say, I'll do that. I swear by my own head. And then when someone says, hey, you said you were going to do that. I said, well, I swore by my head. I didn't swear by God. I didn't swear by the temple, so you, you can't hold me to that. Right? And they would do, they would use those things to get out of what they were doing. But James is speaking about how we are to speak in light of the coming of Christ. The type of life we're called to is patiently enduring and watchable, and it is inconsistent with big speech and big promises and big claims. It's more consistent with clear speech. Letting your yes be yes and your no be no. Why? Because when you don't do that, you are what James condemns. You are a double-minded person. You are unstable in all your ways. Why? Because even when you say something, people can't trust you. So you feel that you need to swear in order to do it. See, you may be struggling today, and many of you probably are. Some of those struggles are outward. People know about them. Some of those struggles are inward. Many of them, in fact, are inward often. Believer, God, through his word, is telling you something this morning. He's saying, live faithfully, live patiently, trusting that your loving, merciful Father always has His glory and your good in His mind. Many of you woke up this morning, church, or you woke up this week, or this month, or this year, and you have experienced something you were not expecting. And it's hard. Some of you wake up every morning with suffering. Maybe it's, uh, maybe it's physical, maybe it's emotional, Maybe it's spiritual, where it is, it's even difficult to get out of bed. God is calling you this morning and saying this. Hear me, child. Wait on me. I'll take care of you. I love you. 
I'm not going to give you what you deserve. In fact, I'm going to show you grace, which means I'm going to give you what you don't deserve. And like so many before, you can know I'm coming. I will deliver you in my time and for my purposes and for my glory. But it will always be for your good because I love you. And I want to show you mercy. So what's that one hardship? That one thing in your mind or your life that just seems to beat you down? Waiting patiently for his deliverance means trusting him in the midst of that. See, we many times don't struggle trusting him after it's over. It's trusting him in the midst of it. You can show your faith and trust by giving it over to him this morning. Believer, live waiting patiently on him. Give your suffering over to God. Trusting him for your present and trusting him for your future. Because, as he says here, the coming of the Lord is at hand. He will deliver you in his own time and for his own purposes. You may be here this morning and you're not a believer. And the truth is, is that you can trust and know for certain you're going to stand before God one day. And you're going to give an account just like everyone else. The difference is, if you don't know Jesus Christ, once you give an account, as I said before, you will then be held accountable and you will be punished for your sin for all of eternity. But it doesn't have to be that way. It doesn't have to be that way. Cry out to him for forgiveness. Cry out to him for deliverance. Cry out for him and say, I don't even understand everything, but he said Jesus died for me and he said Jesus rose again and he said Jesus will forgive me of my sins and give me eternal life. God, please forgive me. Make me yours. I want to follow you the rest of my life. If that's you this morning, you can do that even now. Let's pray together.